uh, Psalm 2, because I know you'll have your Bibles. Uh, and we're going to start at Psalm 2, so go ahead and turn there with me. Psalm 2 is really a summary of all history from the beginning until the consummation. It's an explanation of all the things that are going to happen in time and space through the history of God's world. And so uh, it's really a summary of his story of what God is doing in this world. Now, before I read Psalm 2, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are at work you're at work in all things, all the time, in things that we may not see or understand, in things that we may not appreciate in the moment. Uh, but as we get to, to zoom out and look at church history uh, this year, we see that you are doing all things for the building of the church. God, I pray that you would increase our confidence in Jesus' ability to build his church you would increase our endurance um, as we seek to be part of that work and, and, and to build up uh, the church as you've placed us. Father, we pray that you would uh, increase our awe of Jesus Christ, how he is able to use all things, even seemingly, uh, a seemingly weak and wicked things, to build the church. Align our heart with his, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's church history right there. That's, that's all the span of human history. Fallen man looks at God and says, how do we burst our chains from him? How do we overpower him? I think it was R.C. Sproul said, it's sort of like if you had all the world powers gathered together, every king of every nation gathered together, and they were able to turn all the, the strongest nuclear weaponry in one direction, they would all turn it upon God. Because if they could dethrone God, they could then take his place. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? You know, that's what we see on the stage of human history is a people. It's really an outplaying of Babel over and over and over again. A people who desire to make their name great by overthrowing God, by dethroning God. Now, what does he do? You know, you and I, we can read the newspaper and we can kind of worry. We, we look at the news and we think, what kind of world are we leaving to our children? What kind of world is this going to be soon? It seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. And we can really get kind of stressed out about it. God has never stressed. There is no panic in the heavenly throne room. What does our God do when he sees the kings uh, attempting to overthrow God? 
our God is in the heavens. He laughs. He laughs at it. Now, not because it's funny, but because it's so pitiful. It's a lot like the language of Babel. They're trying to build a tower up to the nations. What did God have to do to see it? He had to stoop down to see it. He had to come down to deal with them. They didn't, they couldn't build their way up to the the heavens. God, when he sees the nations of the earth go about their daily business, trying to make a name for themselves, trying to secure their power and trying to uh, secure their throne, he laughs at it. It's silly, it's foolish for these finite little beings to try to create their own world, to try to create their own legacy. And that's what Psalm 2 is. It's a summary of his story. Let me give you one of my favorite examples of this. 753 BC, Rome was founded. That would make that event contemporary with prophets like Isaiah uh, and Hosea. And from about 500 BC on, Rome became a republic Uh, that was ruled by senate rather than just by a monarch, by an emperor or king. Rome grew larger and larger. It grew greater and greater. It became one of the great world powers on the face of the earth. But by the first century, a series of civil wars tore the republic to pieces. It was such chaos that the senate couldn't rebuild. And so it took a man to come along who was strong enough, who was a great enough leader, who was hungry enough for power to come in and rebuild. Who was that man? Julius Caesar, right? So along comes Caesar, the most famous of the Roman soldiers and politicians. And it seemed as though he would restore Rome to its former glory. But in 44 BC, Caesar was assassinated by Brutus and Cassius because they desired to restore Rome to a republic. Well, Caesar's death comes, a new leader arises. It was his nephew who became his adopted son, Octavius Caesar. He assumed power over Rome in 31 BC, and he received the title Augustus Caesar, or Caesar Augustus. Do you know what Augustus means? Exalted one. Yeah. (laughs) That place is not exalted. Um, And he began a reign as a bloodthirsty and and foolish leader. He matured into a wise and generous ruler through the years. But his 45 years in government restored Rome to peace and stability and justice. That was part of what we know as the Pax Romana. And during that time, he did things like um, create a great system of roads. Uh, At that time, Caesar Augustus would have been one of the most powerful people on the face of the earth. In fact, by the end of his life, the only legislated religion of Rome was what? Worship of him. He was like the Catholic Church will, after people's death, canonize people. He was, even before his death, seen as a savior sent from the gods. But his most lasting impact was nothing that he intended. Look with me at Luke 2 for a moment. You hear this every year at Christmas time, and I think this is just one of the most fascinating little stories with very little comment on it. So you look at Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Oh, we know who he is now. I know who he is. He was Julius Caesar's nephew, adopted son, who became uh, emperor in 31 BC, and people began worshiping him and all of that stuff. In, the days of, uh, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. All right, 
you have a problem here, don't you? You've got the Messiah on the way. We already know that. He's in the womb of Mary. Where is Mary geographically located? She's in Nazareth, right? So how might God get a, let's say, eight to eight and a half month pregnant woman to travel a hundred miles, not in a comfy vehicle, but probably on the back of a donkey? How could he get her to do that so that the baby would be born at Bethlehem? Well, Augustus Caesar, he wanted more money. He wanted to secure his kingdom and expand its boundaries. So he has a census. Do you see it? The nation's plot in vain. Augustus Caesar, in attempting to grow his kingdom, is actually an unknowing pawn in God growing the greater kingdom. And by the way, it's not as if God said, oh no, I have a problem. Mary's at Nazareth. I need to get her to Bethlehem. This was all an outworking of God's plan so that today we could understand that God laughs when the rulers of this world plot against him. And what he's doing through it all is building his church. We're going to see that again and again in this class, that that the things that happen in this world for all sorts of reasons, God ultimately turns them around on their head to build his church. Let's, Let's go on to the next slide. Church history. This is why I want you to study church history. This is why I want you to care about it. Here we go. First, it shows us how Christ has ruled and overruled through history to build his church. The Roman Empire was a wicked place. Now, it had a lot of civilization in one sense, but it was a pagan civilization. And perhaps there had never been a powerful people on the face of the earth. And God used it to create the environment in which his son would come into the world. Let me quote Jonathan Edwards here. Y'all are familiar with Jonathan Edwards? perhaps one of the greatest theologians and pastors to set foot on American soil. By the way, he wasn't American. He he was still British. He was still colonial. Listen to Edwards. He says, Though the learning and power of the Roman Empire were so great, and both were employed to the utmost against Christianity, we're going to see that, yet all was in vain. They could neither root it out nor stop its progress. In spite of all, The kingdom of Christ wonderfully prevailed, and Satan's heathen kingdom moldered and uh, consumed away before it. See, Rome's advances were great, and God used them to build the kingdom. He used them to build the church. So the Pax Romana, the the great Roman peace, God used it as a, a period of unprecedented peace in which the gospel could go forward unhindered. The famous system of Roman roads that were created to facilitate travel and commerce. How did God use it? Easy travel for the apostles, easy travel for the missionaries to go to the ends of the known world at that time. It's incredible the amount of progress that the gospel made in just the first century just the first century, and a big part of the reason was the Roman roads. Now, secular historians look at that and they say, well, yeah, it was just coincidence. It was right timing. No, God had superintended even the development of Rome for the propagation of the gospel. Uh, Greece is another one. Uh, Before Rome, Greece was the great world power. And who was the great leader of the Greeks? Alexander the Great. 
He spread Greek culture throughout the known world. And even after his, his kingdom broke up, Greek culture, Hellenistic culture and language endured. If you were a Roman aristocrat, you sent your, your son to study at Athens, to get an education, to learn the Greek language and learn philosophy. This became a setting ripe for the New Testament. Greek is a much more universal language than Hebrew, a much more easily understood and communicated language. Hebrew was a very niche language, and I've learned Hebrew, and it's hard to learn Hebrew. Greek is much easier to learn and understand, and many more people on the face of the earth at that time knew Greek. And so what did Alexander the Great, what end did he ultimately serve? The New Testament being written in a language that was understandable to many. See, in all the things that even seem so bad in church history, we see God just turning them around on on its head. You know, back to Psalm 2. The father says to the son, ask of me and I'll give the nations to you as an inheritance. That's that's the outplaying of God's side of human history. The human side is, is... The nations rage, the people plot in vain. God's perspective is, ask of me and I'll give the nations to you. And what we see, even through Caesar, even through Alexander the Great, is the gospel is going forth and the nations are coming to Jesus Christ. Even by the end of the first century. Um, It's hard to prove this historically, but legends have it. Thomas took the gospel to India. Uh, Matthew took it to Ethiopia. Mark to Egypt. It's even believed that by the end of the first century, and I could not make this case historically, but it's been relayed historically that uh, the gospel had made it to Japan by the end of the first century. I mean, that's how far and fast it was spreading in part because God had created this setting that was perfect for the spread of the gospel. We're going to see it again when we get to the time of the Reformation. So what's our main date that we, main event that we think of with the Reformation? 95 Theses, what year was that? 1517, good. Uh, 1517, Martin Luther nails uh, 95 Theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Well, that's not the first event related to the Protestant Reformation. There were a number of, of preceding events, but one of the major ones was just a few years before, a man named Johannes Gutenberg does what? Now... Not only are the scriptures being recovered, but they're being put in the hands of the people. So the average person can have a copy of the scriptures in a way that no point in history had that ever been able to happen. Is it coincidence? No, it's God superintending the events of the world, ruling and overruling uh, even the most wicked of powers to build his church. That's the history of the church is just Christ keeping his promise to the disciples. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, so that's the first thing. It shows us how Christ is ruled and overruled. Second reason we should study church history is it's incredibly interesting. I was reading this yesterday, 174 years ago yesterday, a snowstorm prevented the pastor of a church in in Colchester, England, from being able to get there. So a layman had to step into the pulpit and preach on very short notice. Well, providentially, there was a 15-year-old boy trying to get to church that morning. The snow hinders him from getting to his home church, so he stops off at that same church where this Protestant layman is going to be preaching. 
The layman preached a very ineloquent and rough message on Isaiah 45, 22, look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. It was under the influence of this man, this untrained preacher's preaching that Charles Haddon Spurgeon was converted that day because of a snowstorm. Isn't that fascinating? You read through church history and it's just loaded with illustrations. It's loaded with with things that can reinforce our faith that in all things Christ is working to build his church. You know, some of the classes, we're going to look at people from church history and they're fascinating, but they're deeply flawed individuals. I mean, Henry VIII, Constantine. I have no idea if Constantine was a Christian, but he was the emperor that tried to, that, that really interjected Christianity as the official religion of Rome. Was he a Christian? I have no idea. He was a deeply flawed man. Henry VIII, Protestantism into England. Why? Because he wanted to get a divorce and the Catholics wouldn't allow it. And so he, he starts a new branch of the church. Deeply flawed man. God can use crooked sticks to draw a straight line. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me incredible courage for ministry. Because every time I go into the pulpit, all I can remember is what a sinner I am. And I read church history and I see God has used sinners throughout history. It also helps us learn from the mistakes and misunderstandings of others. Those who are ignorant of the past are what? Doomed to repeat it. You're going to study church history. We're going to go through this year of church history, and you're going to hear every heresy that's been uh, condemned in church history. You're going to hear it somewhere in the rest of your life in Sunday school classes, in conversations with people. I remember I had one conversation one day with a guy that professed to be a Christian, and I'm just sitting there in my head counting off, oh, they condemned that in 325 at the Council of Nicaea. They condemned that at four, in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon. And he's just naming thing after thing because he hasn't been trained in church history. When we're trained in church history, we understand not only our theology, but why it matters. So those who are ignorant of the past are doomed to repeat it. If we're ignorant of how the church has developed and grown through the years on major doctrinal issues, If we're ignorant, we're going to repeat those. Now, here's the problem. There's another part to that saying. I don't think it was part of the original saying that those who are ignorant of the past are doomed to repeat it, but it's been added on. Those who are aware of the past are doomed to stand by and watch others repeat it. And so you're going to be, you're going to turn on the TV at some point. You're going to see a televangelist and you're going to go, are you kidding me? You know, T.D. Jakes, you're teaching modalism. Modalism has been ruled out for 1,700 years. And here you are teaching it on the TV again. And it is really painful to stand by and watch. All right, so it helps us learn from the mistakes. It guards us against chronological snobbery and the spirit of the age. Now, I didn't make that up. That's C.S. Lewis's great line, chronological snobbery. And it, uh, it's part of sort of the evolutionary theory that we all have built into us, which is we know more than everybody who has ever gone before us. We're the smartest group that's ever lived. We're the smartest Christians that have ever lived. And so we look back in history and we look at what people did and believed and we say, I cannot imagine, I can't believe they used to do that sort of thing. It's easy to do that with slavery. You look back at somebody like Jonathan Edwards, Who owns slaves? How could a pastor, how could a Christian own slaves? I don't have an answer or a defense to that. What I do know is there's a thing called the spirit of the age. In fact, look with me at Ephesians 2. You and I are subject to a paradigm, a spirit that is instilled in us by this sinful world. So was Jonathan Edwards. So was Martin Luther. So was St. Augustine. We're all 
because of the culture, the air in which we breathe, we all have blind spots. We all make great mistakes and we're completely unaware of it. And so we look back at our, our, our brothers and sisters two, three, four hundred years ago who owned slaves and we're going to say, how in the world could they do that? And guess what? In two, three hundred years, Christians are going to look back at us and they're going to say, how in the world could those people do that? Now, I wonder all the time, what's that going to be? How could they stand by when, when 60 million babies were slaughtered in the womb? How could they do that? I don't know what it's going to be in two or three hundred years. I asked Doug Kelly. Doug Kelly's a, a seminary professor and he's discipled me for years. Dr. Kelly, what do you think it's going to be? And he said, without missing a beat, he said, worldliness. They're not going to believe how worldly we are, how much we love the world. Look at Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that's the air we breathe. Do you think that as soon as you become a Christian, all of that goes away? No, we still have things that need to be sanctified out of us. We all have blind spots. When we study church history, we get past some of our blind spots. We see from another perspective people who don't think exactly like we do. And we desperately need that. We're going to meet people. We're going to meet a young slave girl named Blandina who is willing to die for Jesus Christ. Would you die for Jesus? The spirit of the age says at all costs, self-preservation, that that's the only thing that matters. We have blind spots of any willingness to really lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel. And church history guards us against that. Church history teaches us our family history. You're going to meet people that you get to spend eternity with. Now, Jesus is going to be the center point. I can't wait to see him. Just read Revelation 4 and 5. That's amazing to think we're going to get to see him. But there's also other people that I'm really excited to see. Marshall, who are you from church history excited to see? Why? Who else? Who do y'all long to meet in heaven? Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be fun. I got a few questions for him, certainly. Who else? Do what? Yeah. Susanna Wesley is going to be a fascinating one. Uh, the mother of, of Charles and John Wesley. Just, I, I just want to meet her and see what was it like? How, how did God work? Your husband essentially abandoned you. You're raising these children on your own for the most part. Well, how did that happen? There's going to be many in church history. And what's really cool about that is these are our brothers and sisters. If you ever listen to um, Steve Nichols' uh, Five Minutes in Church History, are you all familiar with that podcast? It's a great podcast. He just takes some kind of eclectic event from church history. And uh, he says, these are the people, places, and, and events that shaped our family history. I love that. These, this is our family history because, you know, your, your flesh and blood 
relationships are really in an eternal perspective secondary to those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the, the, the relationship that will endure forever. And so as we study church history, uh, we're seeing our family history. Last thing is, it shows us we're not alone. Do you ever feel that way? I'm the only one that really cares about this. We get that prophet complex. Nobody else cares. Everybody else has bowed the knee. And then you read church history and you realize you're not alone and you're not crazy. I mean, you may be crazy for other reasons, but for believing in Jesus Christ, you're not crazy. And that when you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and the world is telling you things like you're on the wrong side of history, you're the problem, you read church history and you realize, no, this is the right side of history. Whatever side is the side of Jesus Christ is the right side of history. And so the right thing, the right place for me to place my faith is in Jesus Christ. All right, let me talk about a bibliography real quick uh, as we go through this class. And just a few books that I think are going to be really helpful if you want to read along. Nick Needham, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. It's a four-volume set. I was talking to the publisher a few months ago. He said it has over a million words in the four-volume set. Um, but it's actually very, very accessible. It's very readable. So I would really encourage that. It's called 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. Robert Godfrey has a 72-part uh, DVD series on church history through Ligonier. I have a couple copies of that. You're welcome to borrow it if you want to. Um, Justo Gonzalez has a book called The Story of Christianity. Christopher Catherwood has a very accessible book called Church History by, uh, I think it was published by Crossway. It's very readable and very good. Um, Joel Beakey and Sinclair Ferguson have a, a book called Church History 101. Those are two of my uh, spiritual man crushes, so I always recommend anything that they write. Um, I love this book, Simonetta Carr, her book, Church History. Simonetta Carr is a phenomenal children's writer. That book is actually probably sufficient to teach this class with, but it's intended for children. It is so good. And so I would encourage you that are raising children or that have grandchildren, get that book and walk through it with them. Um, teach them that, just how God has worked in history, how God has worked with power to build the church. And then, as I mentioned, Steve Nichols' podcast, Five Minutes in Church History. All right, let's get into our history. Um, I don't know how far we'll get today. We're going to see. Today, I'm going to start with the first century. Um, we're going to go into the second century. Uh, we're also going to spend a week just looking at how did we get our Bible? How many of you would feel comfortable answering that? Somebody says, oh, how did we get that Bible? Or they maybe bring accusations that there's all sorts of, of uh, questionable things in how we got the Bible. For example, Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, that came out in 2006. The intention of it was to draw into question the authenticity of the scriptures. Would y'all be comfortable answering that question? How did we get the Bible and how can, why can we trust it? My hope is that after sitting through some time studying that, you'll be comfortable answering those questions. My hope is for those of y'all that are in college or going to college and you're going to have professors that are going to assault your faith, you're going to have a rock solid foundation of understanding how we got the scriptures and why we can trust them. I don't know if y'all know this name, Bart Ehrman. How many of you have ever heard that name? All right, if you were to get the, you know those great courses, um, DVDs that you can order online. Have y'all ever seen advertisements for those? They, they make... They, they have all sorts of subject matter. But the, I don't know if it's the Christianity one in general or if it's just the New Testament one, is by Bart Ehrman. 
Bart Ehrman is the uh, main, and he's a famous professor of uh, New Testament at UNC. Um, he professes, uh, well, his definition of being a Christian would be radically different than anything you and I would say or even anything we would find in the scriptures. His desire is to dismantle the faith of children like those who grow up in our church, to attack their faith. And he starts with the scriptures. So we need to know how do we get the scriptures and why are they trustworthy? Um, so we'll go on to that in the second century in the weeks ahead. But today, let's look at the first century. Here's sort of an overview. Um, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ beginning around 4 BC. Now, does that strike anybody as funny? So Christ was born four years before Christ? <laughs> the, the reality is probably. Have you ever thought about how and when it started to be that, that, that history got broken down into BC and AD? You know, was it like Jesus was born and people were like, oh, we're now in AD. I need to sign my checks, uh, AD now, no more BC. It's going to take me weeks to realize that. Um, no, it's, it's actually something that happened very slowly. When Jesus was born, most of the world went on as usual. And they didn't think, wow, you know, we're now in the year of our Lord. Most of the world had no idea. In those days, most people marked the passing of time not by saying, oh, we're in the year 7 AD. They did it in relation to historical events. Uh, relative to their small world. So Isaiah chapter 6, when did Isaiah have his throne room experience? In the year that King Uzziah died. That was how the ancients told time. It was in relation to their own small world. That was the world they knew. So the vast majority of, of the ancient world told time in that way. It was actually in the year 500 or so that a monk from Italy named uh, Dionysius Exegus something like that, proposed the BCAD system that we know today. So he did some math, and what he figured out based on the historical evidence of the time was that 753 years before the birth of Christ, the Roman Empire was founded. They had you know, solid evidence of when the Roman Empire was founded. So I said earlier that was 753 BC, so he said Christ must have been born in the year 1 AD. And so that started our understanding of the centuries the way we understand them now. So by the way, what century are we in? Right, good. So we're in, Christ was born in the first century. So you get to the year 101, that's the second century. It, it doesn't quite, you have to do the math. So the 17th century would have been the what? 1600s, right? So it's, it does take a minute to do the math, but that's why. So he believed um, Jesus was born in what we learned to be about the year 1 AD. And so everything before that was BC. Everything after that was AD. It always cracks me up when secularists try to say, oh, no, that's com before Common Era and after Common Era. Oh, well, how'd you get that dividing point between BC and, I mean, yeah, BC and CE, BCE and CE. How'd you get that dividing point? Well, it all hinges back to Christ. But... Most historians are firmly, even secular historians are firmly convinced Dionysius dates were probably a little bit off. Now that we have access to more historical evidence, this is not anything that ought to impact our faith. This is just a one person's projection. But in all likelihood, Christ was born more like between 6 BC and 4 BC. 
main way we know that is that King Herod the Great died in 4 BC. And so if Herod died, then we would have an error in understanding what Herod did in response to the birth of Christ. So in all likelihood, Christ was born probably between 4 and 6 BC. Um, it was, so that was in the 500s. In the 600s, England started to accept that system of dating. It wasn't for about a thousand more years that most of the rest of the world began to use the BC and AD uh, date settings the way we know it today. Um, this is just a quick glimpse. You have this map, but this is a quick glimpse of Palestine in the first century under Herod the Great. So this would have been the world as it was known at the time. This would have been the world that Jesus was born into. So we're going to say Jesus was somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C. till about 28-ish, 27, 28, 30 A.D. We really don't know. I think if we needed to know, God would have told us that. Um, Jesus' public ministry started about when he was 30. It went roughly three years. Um, so God's son was born as man. Uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. He called and trained disciples. We're going to see that, Lord willing, next week in John's gospel. He taught about the kingdom. And he was, as the scriptures describe him, a man uh, mighty in word and deed. So he was going about teaching. He was going about doing miracles. The church ought to be also about word and deed. Uh, tendencies in churches like ours are that we'll be heavy on the word, but not as strong on deeds of compassion and those things. And to be like the Lord Jesus is to be strong in word and deed. He lived a perfect, uh, perfect life and substitutionary death. In fact, all of his life was substitutionary. It was a life of active obedience. Sometimes theologians call this the active obedience of Christ. 33 years perfectly keeping the law. That's what uh, Galatians 4.4 4 says. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those born under uh, the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So he, he perfectly, actively kept the commandments of God, the law of God, and then we talk sometimes about his passive obedience, where he uh, willingly went to the cross and allowed not only man to, to crucify him, but his father to pour out the sins of the world upon him. And by the way, if you wonder, well, who's the world? What's the world that you're talking about? We're going to deal with that in a few minutes uh, in my sermon. Uh, so he was crucified, dead. He was buried. Pontius Pilate was uh, in power at the time, Pilate was concerned people were going to steal the body, so he put guards to make sure nobody broke into the grave. He didn't anticipate Jesus breaking out of the grave. He was resurrected. He ascended into heaven where he sits even now at the right hand of God interceding for us. Okay, so that's a quick overview of the life of Christ. The church was founded roughly around 30 A.D. Um... I say roughly because there's a very strong sense where covenant theology teaches that the church and the that the people of God in the Old Testament were the church. The way the Westminster Confession of Faith says it, I think, is really helpful. It calls it a the church uh, under age, or the, we'd say the church in its infancy. So the church was in seed form in Israel. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, and people date kind of the, the main founding of the church differently, whether it's the ascension or Pentecost. I'm not particularly worried about it. But the people of God 
have entered into the new covenant. Now, there's three main confluences upon the church in the first century. The first is, is Judaism. So Christianity, we think of Christianity and Judaism as being sort of antithetical to each other. I think we know better than that. Y'all are well-trained in how the Old and New Testament fit together. But in the first century, most Christians thought it was totally okay to go to synagogue on Saturday and go to worship on Sunday. It was actually the pastors and the rabbis that were most frustrated with this. Uh, and, and the pastors and rabbis would say, you've got to either follow Jesus or don't follow Jesus. But, but to accept Christ is going to change certain things about how you practice Judaism. You're no longer under the civil and ceremonial laws, for example. Um, J. Gresham Machen says this really, really well. Christianity was not an entirely new religion. It was rooted in the divine revelation already given to the chosen people. Even those things which were most distinctive of Christianity had been foreshadowed in Old Testament prophecy. That's why you get to synagogue life in the first century, excuse me, church life in the first century, and the practice of the church looks a lot like the practice of the synagogue. It's very, very similar. There was, there was um, public reading of scripture and prayer and singing and so on. Um, now, one of the benefits of being connected with the Jews is the Jews were a favored people among the Romans. They were the only people group that we know of that was exempted from emperor worship, as long as they didn't make too big of a deal about it. And so because of that, for a little while, the Christians were sort of exempt from some of the persecution that would come. We're going to come back to that in a minute. That was the first confluence. Second confluence is they were growing up. The church was being formed in the context of Roman political climate. So you had Pontius Pilate. You had uh, Nero, who's going to have a great impact by the mid-60s AD. And then the third thing is you had Greek thought life. And so the way uh, Greek philosophy taught and communicated affected how the church evangelized. Uh, and so all three of those things are are affecting the church. They're not shaping the church, but in God's providence, they're the, the air in which the church is breathing. Well, early growth of the church. The church was very simple. It was really centered upon the means of grace. The means of grace. This is what we talk about today, the ordinary means of grace. But Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We'd call that preaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. There's a lot of debate over whether that's communion or not. Um, it's okay either way. We know from the early days that the church was taking the Lord's Supper as we do, and the prayers. So what was the church doing? It, it wasn't anything novel. They were reading and teaching the, the scriptures. They were praying. They were fellowshipping together, and potentially they were taking the sacraments. It's kind of encouraging to think, isn't it? What we do on Sundays is really the same thing that our brothers and sisters have been doing for 2,000 years. For me as a pastor, that's incredibly freeing to not think, you know, every week I got to come up with some new idea. Let's have interpretive dance this week. Marshall's going to dance this week. Everybody show up. Marshall's dancing. It's going to be great, right? We're not having to come up with new and novel things week after week. And by the way, I know churches do feel that pressure. Uh, I got to outdo what I did last week, you know? I, where was it? A church in Charlotte had... Uh, created a huge slide that you would land in the baptismal pool. That's how you got baptized because regular baptisms are so boring. They're so first century, right? No, 
the things that worked in the early church are the things that work today because it's not us who works, it's God who works. From the very beginning, the people, the, the Christians were known as people of the book. In fact, there's strong historical evidence that the codex, a, a book shaped like this, loosely like this, not so much a scroll like they had historically had, but something that's portable and can hold more pages, that was the product of the Christian hunger to have the word accessible. And so they were people of the means of grace. A church organization, just a word about this. In the first century, it was originally apostles and deacons. By the end of the first century, there's a transition to, uh, from apostles to elders. Uh, you drive down Broad River Road in Beaufort, you're going to see a church sign that says apostle and, Mrs., uh, apostle and first lady such and such. The apostolic age was a unique age in which God entrusted the formation of the doctrine of the church to a handful of people known as apostles. To be an apostle means you had God-given authority to help establish the doctrine and practice of the church. Nobody today has that, and we don't need that. Because by the end of the first century, we had everything we needed to know in terms of life and godliness because we have the scriptures. And so by the end of the first century, you've gone from apostles to elders uh, in the leadership of the church. By the end of the second century, church leadership is not monolithic. You start to have bishops. We'll see this in a few weeks, but you have bishops. Uh, You start to have a hierarchical system that will eventually shape Roman Catholicism. Let's talk about the spread of the church for a minute. The church starts to grow, and there's going to be a common thread about everything, every major step of growth in the Christian church. Do you know what the common thread is? Persecution. Persecution. And you might want to step back and say, why would the Lord invest so much into the church, training them, dying for them, giving them a place in Jerusalem, giving them all these blessings only to persecute them. Seems kind of like a mistake. Nah, persecution has historically been God's way of spreading the gospel. I know that's hard to, none of us really get excited. I can't wait to get persecuted. Hopefully somebody will show up today and arrest us for worshiping. None of us think that way. But historically, the ways God has built the church have been through persecution. Why has persecution had such a a tremendous impact on the church? A positive impact? How so? Good. It caused them to spread. What else did it do? Good. Yeah, that's the famous line of Tertullian. The more you mow us down, the more we grow back up. He, used, he was using the image of how you cut weeds and then they, so the seeds sort of spread out like a dandelion and more grow back. He said, that's what happens when you cut us down. More will grow back up. The blood of the martyrs see the church. Why else does persecution lead to the growth of the church? Yes. How so? good. What do you really have to lose by showing up to church today? What did you have to lose? An hour. (laughs) That's generous. (laughs) A couple hours. 
But you really didn't have anything else to lose, did you? So what if the risk becomes that any time we may get arrested for our faith? (laughs) Would they even have enough evidence against you to arrest you? The first century, it's culling the church between false Christians and true Christians. False Christians are not going to die for something they don't really believe in. Persecution has historically done the church a great benefit by purifying it. Persecution kind of looked like this. Herod and the Pharisees, we know, we know why they did. The Jewish leadership persecuted Jesus because it was a threat to the religious enterprise. Why did Rome care so much? You know, by 64 AD, Nero is pretty heavily uh, persecuting the church, probably was responsible for the deaths of Peter and Paul. Uh, by the end of the first century, you've got Domitian. That's when really persecution is going to get very bad. Why did Rome care? Partly because the Jews were trying to set the church up. The Judaizers were causing a lot of problems and blaming on the church, and they're the ones kind of stirring up the few sects that developed against the Roman Empire. And also because the Christianity explicitly teaches us Caesar is not God. Good. Christians would not bow down to Caesar. And that infuriated the Romans. You must be unfaithful. You must be an infidel. You're not loyal to Rome, then you're politically dangerous. Combine that with this idea. Are you, you don't worship our gods? You don't, you don't worship Jupiter and Mercury and all that? The gods are the ones that keep things going. If we want to have a good life, if we want our crops to flourish, if we want to to be clear of droughts and floods and all those things, we need to appease the gods. You Christians, you will not sacrifice to the state gods. What's wrong with you people? You're the enemy of the state. Worship these gods. Quit. And, And by the way, it's always been this way. Christians, we don't care if you worship Jesus as long as you worship other gods too. It is the same today. We don't care if you're a Christian as long as, you don't, as long as you don't force that upon us, as long as you bow down to the spirit of this age. It's really not that different today than it was in the first century. In the first century, you Christians are the problem. You won't worship our gods. You won't bow before them. So if anything bad happens, you're the problem. It's the same today. You know, we could really make advances in culture today if you Christians weren't so bigoted about marriage and gender. If you weren't so uh, patriarchal about the sanctity of life. You know, if you Christians are the problem. You and I are increasingly going to feel the tension of, are we going to bow down before the gods of this world or not? It's really not that different than it was 2,000 years ago. Um, so you've got these events. You've got the stoning of Stephen. Uh, Paul's conversion. We're going to talk a little bit about Paul. We'll have to wait till next week. But you've got Paul's conversion. You've got the Council of Jerusalem. The, the Council of Jerusalem is really trying to figure out, hey, we never thought about Gentiles coming into the church. What are we going to do about these folks? Do they need to be circumcised? Do we circumcise them? What do we need to do with them? It, it was really a wonderful issue that they had to figure out. You know, that's historically what God has done. Problems have arisen, and then the church has had to figure out, okay, what do we believe about this? So we'll talk in the 300s about the Arian-Athanasian controversy. Who was Jesus? Before then, the church had not really put a lot into writing about, is Jesus fully God? Is he fully man? Controversies often cause the church to have to deal with hard things. 
and it galvanizes the church to really understand its doctrine. Um, So you've got the Council of Jerusalem. Then the center of the church really begins to shift the latter part, the latter half of the first century. It shifts from Jerusalem to Antioch. Antioch was a a Syrian city. Um, and, And so that's becoming the home, the hub of Christian thought. Let me, we're not going to get into Paul. Uh, there's really only a couple more minutes, but let me stop here and just ask for comments or questions. Miss Debbie. So, so you said in the church, the church found in Jerusalem, the Jews were favored by the Romans and they didn't have to worship the emperor. So is that a different time frame than the Christ? Yeah, so there were two things. There was an event that happened about 100 years before the coming of Christ. Uh, and I don't remember all the details about it, where one sect of Jews backed a Roman leader, another sect of Jews backed another Roman leader. The Roman leader that this sect backed won, and so he granted lots of favor and latitude for the Jews. That started to fade by the end of the first half of the um, first century. Yes, ma'am. Say, Say that again. Good. Yeah. A Pharaoh came along who knew not Joseph. Yeah. All right. I hope you're excited to study this. Uh, It'll probably be the most time consuming study I've ever done. And what I'm going to do for a Sunday school class, at least, what I am going to do is enlist people along the way uh, to do some teaching. And so knowing who's in this class will be helpful. Uh, And what I'm going to do is we'll camp out. We may come to characters like St. Augustine or Constantine, or John Calvin, or the, you know, any of these folks from church history. We may, we may just spend a whole class on them, and that may be where I enlist men from this class to do some of the teaching. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you for your creation and your providence. In creation, you uh, built the world. In providence, you are building the church. Um, Father, we don't understand day to day why you do what you do, but we know that your ultimate purpose among all of it is uh, that the Son may be given the nations, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation may bow before the Lord Jesus, confessing he is Lord. He is building the church. Father, use this class to spiritually nourish us and strengthen us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.